Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. On this episode of the podcast, we have an extra special guest, Greg Zuckerman, an investigative reporter and special writer at the Wall Street Journal and author of multiple books, including the one we're going to focus on today, The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simons Launched the Quant Revolution, a story about the founder of a hedge fund with the greatest performance track record in history and his firm, Renaissance Technologies. Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, Greg. Great to be here. Great. Thank you for joining us. And before we do dive into the man who solved the market, I would love it if you could share with our listeners who, who do, do love the book recommendations and, and talking about books, a brief overview of your other books, uh, one of which is one of my favorite investment books of all time, The Greatest Trade Ever. And you also have a new one out about the race to create the COVID-19 vaccine. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of what I do and I'm passionate about what I'm drawn to are unlikely heroes. And people and companies that have accomplished big things, changed the world when it should not have been them. And that's kind of what my first book is about, The Greatest Trade Ever. It's about those who anticipated the financial crisis. It wasn't who you would have expected, the banks, the short sellers, the mortgage experts. There was this guy, John Paulson, who was a merger guy. He didn't really know much about mortgages and a few other kind of quirky, unusual people. I did a book called The Frackers, which is about the unlikely revolution in this country where we went from a nation dependent on others for oil and gas to one we're producing a lot of it. And it wasn't Exxon and Chevron and BP. And that's what that book's about. Unusual characters in Oklahoma and and North Dakota and places like that. And um, I've written a couple of books with my two sons, which actually similar themes. They're sports books. They're trying to inspire young people called Rising Above. It was a series we did. And it's sports stars who overcame challenges and and became um, what they are, but, but they did so in a lot of ways. They were unlikely people. They overcame um, physical abuse, um, um, physical differences, actual abuse, uh, poverty, all kinds of different challenges. So in wow. some ways, my books are somewhat similar. And then, yeah, the most recent one is the COVID book. It's called um, A Shot to Save the World. And again, it should not have been Moderna. It should not have been Beyonce. It should have been Merck should have been the bigger companies that saved us all. And I described why. Oh, wow. No, that's fascinating. And I would recommend that everybody check those out. And, and thanks you, thank you for, for sharing. Um, pivoting to the man who solved the market, why specifically did you want to write this book? So I originally did because I, I write about financial markets. I've been to the Wall Street Journal since 1996. And you always hear about this firm, Renaissance Technologies. Oh, how great they are. The Italian fund, the best ever. Jim Simons. I don't know how he does it, Greg, but he he <laughs> tears it up every year. And it was always like this mystery. It was the mystery that no one could solve. And I figured, uh, wow, if I could share the story, their story and, and tell it to the world, uh, it'd be an interesting one to tell. And so, yes, yeah, the returns. Uh, also, it's because they are the original quants. They're the original people putting together algorithms, all the stuff that we depend on in our day-to-day lives and Netflix and Facebook. And now you're talking about chat GBT, that kind of stuff. It, it, these guys were developing it in the 70s and 80s. It's crazy. So they were the pioneers. Um, but I guess the, the most important reason is that theme I keep coming back to. It should not have been Jim Simons and his colleagues. They, they're mathematicians. They're scientists. 
they, 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 they're not traders. I grew up reading financial books and, and magazines and barons and all that kind of stuff. These guys didn't. They don't care about that kind of stuff. <laughs> they don't care about financial markets, really. And yet they're the ones who, who solved the market, who got the, had the best, have the best record in history. So unlikely heroes, the same thing. And and that's it's so funny. And at one point in your book, they're I think they're on a sales meeting or a sales call, and and one of the the port, uh, portfolio guy, one of the members of the hedge fund, is bringing up stocks that don't even exist a- anymore, and he just doesn't have a clue. I think it's Chrysler or something like that. Yeah, exactly right. Bob Mercer, who at the time uh, was one of the top two people at the firm, was using an example Chrysler, <laughs> and people were cringe cringing in the room. People who work with him, kind of sales kind of people, they're like, oh, boss, they don't they say it, but they're like, there's no Chrysler stock. He was giving like some dated example because yeah. he doesn't really follow the financial pages. They're all about what well, we can talk about with her about, but they're not about the, the approaches that you and I use or most traditional people use. So yeah, very unlikely people. So you touch on it a little bit, but how do you explain Jim Simons and his funds uh, to your friends and family who maybe don't curl up with the Wall Street Journal on a Saturday morning? So I say that he is a uh, geometer. He's a mathematician. He goes down in history as one of the greatest uh, geometers. Uh, and even mathematicians of the past 100 years or so will influence in different kinds of mathematics. He was an academic. He was a code breaker. He, he worked with the U.S. government um, going up against the, the Russians in the Cold War. And then he decided to apply those interests and skills and talents to trading. And it took him a while. Um, many years. I think that's one of the things people are most surprised by when, when they read my book. They figure, okay, this super duper smart guy uh, figured out the markets as he applied himself. And it took many years. And it's really a story of persistence and resilience in a lot of ways. And he found patterns, he and his colleagues, that um, exist in the markets that you and I are not aware of, that most people are not aware of. And they're subtle and they're fleeting and you have to trade them quickly sometimes. But they figured it out and they went off and changed it, changed Wall Street history and um, created a remarkable amount of wealth. So my book's about how they made the money and then what it did to them in some ways that would cause the rift and what Jim is doing with all his money. And, um, you, you know, talk a little bit about that track record. You, uh, I, I don't know if backed into it is the right word, but you found a way to, to calculate it kind of what you thought it was before fees and after fees. And it's just a, a stunning number that's created an immense amount of wealth for him. I think you said the average employee has $50 million or had when he wrote the book, $50 million invested in the funds. You, you know, what, what is the, the track record? And just to, to give people perspective, how does that even stack up? Yeah. So before fees and these guys charge a ton in the way of fees to their investors and their investors at this point, we're talking about the medallion fund. It's called, yep. it's a hedge fund called medallion. That's the key fund. That's the one that's broken all the records the key one within the firm this medallion fund over time they've kicked out all their outside investors and it's mostly just employees and a few old family friends and family but it's mostly just that anyway they charge an arm and a leg but they've recorded before these fees about i think it's 66 percent a year annually um since i think i started in 1982 when they kind of turned the corner there and but after fees, it's only about 37 <laughs> percent. So oh, it's just crazy, <laughs> crazy high numbers, every kind of market, including um, last year, 2022. They did nicely up about 20 percent, even the market down 20 percent. 
So, uh, yeah, the, the returns are just, and yeah, there's heads and tails above everybody else, Warren Buffett and beyond. And, and, and some might counter by saying, well, Warren Buffett's got uh, Berkshire Hathaway's over $100 billion market cap, and um, that's much bigger than Medallion Fund. This Medallion Fund we're talking about right now is about $15 billion. Historically, it's been between 5 and $10 billion. And I would say, yes, that's part of their success. They decided not to grow this thing. Jim Simons wanted performance to be good. And one way to ensure that is to keep it relatively small. So that's how they've done that, by keeping it around $10 billion. So you talk about his background and you know the unlikeliness of his story as it connects to this track record, you know, geometer, mathematician, star cryptologist, head of a math department, but he always wanted to crack the investment game. And um, why is that, in in your opinion, that it was so important for him to pivot into that area and and come to dominate it? Oh, it was so important to Jim Simons because Jim Simons loves math. He loves theorems. He now is involved in all kinds of other things, politics and autism research. But one thing he really, really loves is money. <laughs> he loves making money. So, and he's, he's there's no shame in there, and he's not embarrassed by it. So, you can make the most money in markets. So he applied his talents to markets because he wanted to get really, really wealthy. So besides his other careers and his start that was outside of the investment industry, it did take him a while to get to the right approach and build up a good track record. They did make some mistakes along the way. You write that he really didn't understand financial history and thought some of his earlier ideas were maybe more innovative than they really were. Um, And so you know, what What are your thoughts there? I could argue that maybe his greatest asset was his persistence in developing, you know, a scalable equity strategy when others around him were kind of satisfied uh, with, with where the fund was before that. And also his management approach in hiring the right people, building the right culture to get it there, maybe versus his investment genius. Is, is that fair or is he maybe underrated as a manager or a leader? Yeah, I'll come back to that in a second. Those are very important points. Uh, Yes, his persistence jumps out at you. So he started the fund, the firm, in 1978. Excuse me. And they went back and forth, different approaches. He, he like like many, w- w- was tempted, enticed um, by the traditional approach. Pick up the newspaper. Gold looks like it's attractive here. It's gone down in price. I'm going to buy gold, silver. And he sometimes made a lot of money doing that approach and sometimes lost a lot. He said that. Uh, he'd make money and feel like a hero and lose money and feel like a fool. It was actually difficult physically on his, his stomach. And, and eventually he came to this uh, systematic approach using computers, uh, pre-programmed algorithms to make trades, um, a quantitative approach. And it does show how tough it is to be a quant because there's that temptation to deduce or, or, or try to predict where the market is going to go. And we all are tempted by that. Even Jim Simons. That's kind of one of the lessons of the book that it is hard to turn the decision over the computer and even to embrace a more systematic approach. And it took him years and eventually he did get there. And frankly, so 70, from 1978 to 1990, he struggled and he went ups and downs and made some money, lose some money. And finally he said, all right, I'm going to try this new approach. But even then, as you suggest, he didn't really get it. He couldn't figure it out when it came to equities. He did make money with commodities and currencies, futures, that kind of stuff. And, he, and like you said, he 
he, he could have been satisfied with that. But remember, he wants to get really, really wealthy. And it's hard to get really well, really wealthy in those markets just because they're relatively small. You can't manage that much money in, in commodities and in uh, currencies, that kind of stuff. So then he focused on stocks. And the reason why he was able to create the greatest investment fund in history is because he's the greatest manager that I've come across. He, the greatest, that you, the greatest manager you've come across. Wow. Yes. Yes. Because oh, wow. he can do it all. He can do the algorithms and um, the the math, and he, he's comfortable on that side of things. But he's really good at recruiting. He he developed these skills when he was an academic. He would tell professors he wanted to hire who were reluctant to join his uh, faculty, his department at um, in, in SUNY uh, Stony Brook. He'd say, you know, come for a few months, come for uh, and, and visit. Come just check it out. And he would do the same thing when he started his hedge fund. People didn't want people from the world of academia had zero interest in trading. He'd say, well, just come over once a week. I'll pay you to help out. And then he'd show them how intellectually challenging the trading world is, which as we all know, but a lot of academics don't understand that inherently. He's got a great way of finding um, what, what, what uh, incentives there are for, for each individual, recruiting them, wooing them, making it attractive. I mean, you know, his firm is, is deep out there in Long Island. It's not a sexy place to be. It's uh, you can't get famous if you work there. Yes, you can get really, really rich, but he's got to create other ways to, to hire. Or he did when he ran the firm and he, and he was really good at that. He's just a good he's actually a, a entertaining person. He's a smart person, of course, but he's a guy you do want to have a beer with. Most of the people I deal with day to day are not like that. So he, he's a great he's a great manager. And, and, and there are all kinds of and, and that's been my argument as to why they're so good. It's um, he's he's um, as it was described to me, he's great at, um, at managing genius. His genius is managing genius, and uh, it's a very flat organization. They recruit differently than other people. There are all kinds of things they do better than everybody else, and that that is the key to their success. I would argue. Wow, no, that's a great uh, overview, and and that does come across in the book. But you know, to hear you know, the greatest manager ever, it definitely puts an exclamation mark on it. And so in a book like this, in a story like this, that goes across, you know, years and decades, you're going to have other interesting characters kind of pop in and out. And at what point, Simons uh, points to Bernie Madoff's track record and starts giving his guys a hard time, like, look at these numbers, why can't we do it? But then eventually he grows suspicious of the returns and pulls out his money. Yeah, uh, Madoff was also a Long Island guy, like like Simons was at the time, and was doing well also. And it was like this steady return. And like others, Jim Simons was impressed, and he was hard on his people. Why, why can't we match these returns? There, it wasn't like Simons wasn't doing well. They were, but and yet uh, he was looking at Madoff also, and, and and it was impressive. And yeah, they started getting suspicious. Uh, and I think, um, yeah, as much as my book is about quants, mathematicians, scientists, these are also just intuitive people who are bright and are skeptical, even of their own success. They come in every day worried about how they're going to make money. They don't rest on their laurels. And um, part of that, that intuitive nature and, and suspicion and skepticism helped them when it came to Madoff, yeah. And so maybe it doesn't matter, maybe it does, but curious, do you think he did anything with that suspicion beyond pulling his own money? Would you have liked him 
would you have liked to see him do something else if if he didn't? Or did he not dig deep enough into the suspicion to really want to just jump into that mess? Yeah, so I've, I wrote about Madoff a lot. I met Madoff at one point, and I have asked people like Jim Simons and others who were suspicious, well, why didn't you go to the authorities? Didn't you have some obligation to go to the authorities? And what they always say to me is, well, um, we had suspicion, we had no evidence, and it was very hard to prove it, obviously. They, Madoff kept it. Um, just a small group of people were aware of the, the fraud. And, and, and frankly, even I was skeptical of Madoff. I had a file on Madoff before it all blew up, but I thought he was front-running. And a lot of people thought he was front-running, which is yeah. not legal, but it's not a fraud. He had this legitimate... Uh, trading um, arm and he had the investment arm and I thought the investment arm was just buying a second right before the the, the trading arm um, so I, I, yeah I don't think Jim Simons had any concrete reasons to suspect it just there were enough um, concerns enough clues out there I guess uh, so yeah one could say maybe they should have gone to the authorities but then again um, Harry Markopoulos went to the authorities. Went to the <laughs> right. No. Yeah. Yeah. They had a lot of information already. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it didn't yeah. matter. So even if they had gone to the authorities, it probably wouldn't have done it. But. Which you're reminded of with the the recent Netflix uh, uh, short documentary on that. Um, so another interesting character, completely different than Madoff, somebody whose book I've also read multiple times uh, is Edward Thorpe. Um, mm. And Edward Thorpe, as I'm rereading your book, and I know you touch on him, I'm thinking... Well, I think Thorpe has a claim to be, you know, one of the first mathematicians to invest quantitatively. You know, he could have been uh, Jim Simons in terms of a track record, but he he kind of went along a, a different path. He he his fund got caught up in some 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 issues. How do you think of Thorpe as it relates to Jim Simons? And do, did they have similar investment approaches? Um, and what, what do you think of of just them, the, the two of them in general? Yes, yeah, so Thorpe is uh, uh, a pioneer. He's um, remarkable in his own right. I, I've read the book. I went out and met with him. We had lunch in, in Newport Beach and it was an honor. And um, he, right, he could have maybe been Jim Simons. There was stuff out of his control and it's also just hard to pull what, what Jim Simons did, it, it has done, is just hard to pull off, to keep it going for so long, to recruit, to be as big as they became to um in every kind of market so yeah ed thorpe had the potential and he, and he earns respect and he was i believe earlier he was earlier than jim simons in terms of being a quant but yeah he he, he moved on and did other things for various reasons what whereas jim persisted the fund and i i you touch on this because it's a very uh big challenge in writing a book like this they are very secretive um the fund the firm um, Simon's himself, um, you, you know, could you describe kind of the lengths that they go to, maybe the challenges in, in doing the research and whether you think it's justified for, for them to, to kind of be as secretive with their approach? Uh, justified. Yeah. <laughs> they are the most secretive firm Wall Street has ever seen. They aren't allowed to talk. They don't talk. They, everyone signs NDAs when they leave. I was, I was making a lot of progress on my book writing about the early days, both Jim Simon's life and then the early days at the firm. And I I had I got some really good stuff. And yet I was up nights just petrified because how do you write a book about Jim Simons and Renaissance without 
talking about what he's done recently, the last decade or so, last 20 years, and why will people talk to me? And I know they're not supposed to talk to me. And I had these meetings scheduled, I think I mentioned in the book, with rivals of Jim, uh, other quants, et cetera. And then I'd get these texts right the night before, oh, Greg, I, I can't meet with you tomorrow. W- why not? Jim asked me not to. Well, he's, he's your competitor. Why, why do you care that Jim Simons asked you not to talk to me? Well, no, it's, it, Greg, it's Jim. It's Jim. So, Jim so, I can't. So not only were people who worked there and worked there not talking to me, but he was, he was telling people at other firms not to talk to me. Uh, but, you know, like Jim, I persisted. <laughs> uh, and, and I do think there are enough people that work there and work there that realize they're part of something remarkable, historic even, and wanted to talk. Maybe not on the record, but they did feel a need to talk. And to your question, of, is it justified? I mean, geez, guys, they're not curing cancer. I, I, I No. I mean, it's their right. It's their prerogative. And I'm a journalist, so I like information <laughs> to, to flow. So I'm, I'm talking my book here. But yeah, they go a little overboard here. I mean, come on. This is, this is let's, let's keep things in, in perspective. This is investing and trading. But, you know, it's their prerogative. It's a private company. They don't want to share their secrets. It's, it's their secret sauce. I mean, it's a golden goose. It keeps producing. Make, it makes these people remarkably wealthy on a yearly basis. And they don't want to kill the golden goose. So I, I, I get it. So their investment case is essentially, if everybody knew what we were doing, this edge would disappear. Is is that yeah. what what drives the the kind of the secret um, keeping? Well, it's interesting. They will readily acknowledge they don't have a secret. I kept waiting for. I kept waiting. Something <laughs> that kept me up at night was, am I missing the secret? Is there something that I'm missing? Some special trade that happens every day and they're able to make money. And, and I was assured by people internally and I don't think they're BSing me. That's not what it is, Greg. It's it's a series of things they do better than everybody else. We hire better than everybody else. We get better leverage than everybody else. We have better sense of how our trades impact the market and impact prices. We have best risk, better risk management on and on. You can read it in the book. So there isn't any one secret. So I don't know why these guys are so paranoid and neurotic, and yet I get it. Even if subtle little um, secrets, um, um, differentials uh, leak out, then they're worried about that. So that's their concern. Sure. No, understood. And and great overview of that. You know, in, in preparing for our conversation today, I was curious what some of the more, quote unquote, traditional investing legends had to say about Simons and his fund. And I did find a clip from the 2021 Berkshire Hathaway meeting where basically Buffett and Munger were asked specifically about Simons and this fund. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but Munger's take was that, you know, their main quant fund did fabulously on short-term trading. They found algorithms that worked. They had predictive value. But when they tried that on long-term stock predictions, it didn't work nearly as well. And with the short-term stuff, they found that if they tried to do it um, too much, they destroyed their advantage. There was a limit on what they could make. What do you think of that answer? Yeah, there's something to be said for that, for sure. Their medallion fund trades what people internally kind of say, moments to months. That's their holding theory, moments to months. And it could be, it's not like high frequency, which it's a blip, it's a split second. It's not like that, but it's pretty frequent, fast-paced trading. 
It's not what you and I would call investing per se. There are some times when it's uh, seconds to seasons is also how they call it. Anyway, where it can be a few months. But that's not where they make the most money. The most money is made in short-term trading and when they've done other kind of things. So they've got these outside funds. They do have some two outside funds or three that they've had rocky track records. Some years good, some years not as good. And those do longer-term trades. So, right, they haven't been as successful um, with longer-term trading. And, yeah, to that, the, the second part speaks to my earlier point that they've kept the funds relatively small at 10 to 15 billion they could have made they could have expanded it to 100 billion or so like buffett but i would argue um the people not necessarily buffett but people i've covered on wall street hedge funds and others they all whenever there's success they increase their fund and their size and frankly there's like this it's a grab of money it's it's, it's trying to get the fees that uh, a company large funds they can charge two percent on a fund that's 40 billion as opposed to 10 billion so why that's you're leaving money on the table if you're not you're not expanding your fund and that's so why i give jim and his colleagues a lot of respect they could have focused on the two on the management fee instead they focused on the the performance the performance fee and so they've tried to focus on performance so yes to munger's point they uh, kept it relatively small, and that was conscious on, on the part of Jim. And there's a lesson there for everybody. And okay, along the lines of lessons, are there lessons to be learned from from this book? Yeah, I think there are a lot, and and some of it is what, what I alluded to earlier. It's funny. After I wrote it, I realized it's as much a management book as it is a trading book. And and frankly, the reviews are good. And you go on Amazon, the reviews are good, but the two kinds of readers who don't like are disappointed by my book are a more right-leaning people because I get into some politics later on and later on. Yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm a moderate myself. Uh, and, and I played down the middle of the Wall Street Journal for sure, but you know, Bob Mercer became a Trump guy and um, some see that what I wrote is critical of that. I don't see it that way. I, I frankly, came away with more appreciation for Bob Mercer after writing the section, but what have you. But the other, um, of course, I focus on those who have negative views of my book, not those who are <laughs> um, as we neurotic writers do. But the others are, some people are like, well, I, I wanted a formula. I wanted the formula that could help me beat the market. I didn't see that the magic formula in the book, so I didn't like the book. And it's funny, the more sophisticated readers, both on Wall Street and elsewhere, they see the little subtle, um, um, the, the subtle, subtle, the way they trade, the way they develop the firm. Again, the management uh, uh, approach, and also how they trade. And, and listen, I didn't. One thing I regret, and I would do for the paperback if we ever put a paperback out of this book. I, I, I have his secrets, as as it were. I've got like twenty things that he does better than everybody else that Jim and and his firm did and do. But I never lump them all together and like on a page i should have done that i thought about doing that i never got around to it and i gotta do that so they're in the book but you kind of have to read it carefully and accumulate along the way people looking for a formula for success it's in the book you just have to be a brilliant geometer try an error for 30 years hire brilliant mathematicians do five hundred thousand lines of code be persistent be the best manager of all like i mean it's in there and it, well, to think you can pick up the book and do it yourself is a little Asinine. Yes, but but I do think that there are some broader themes. So, for example, 
his firm is really flat. They're remarkably flat. There are no silos, as you see in Wall Street all the time, meaning no groups that are off in a corner doing their own thing. And you see that over and over again. And I've talked to other big firms on Wall Street, Quant and others, and they're like, yeah, we wish we could do it like Jim, but we just can't. In other words, someone, a trader has a great year. The rest of the firm doesn't have a good year. You got to give that that trader a, a bonus based on their return or else they're going to leave. We got to give them more authority. You got to give them a higher high, and give them more leeway, autonomy. And that does not happen at Renaissance. They, everyone works together really well. Everyone has access to this same, the same code. It's crazy. The secret code that you get fired if you, if you share it on the outside. But on the inside, everyone's sharing it. it it's a remarkably collegial place and how they hire. Um, how they recruit talent, all that kind of stuff. I think there are lessons for all of us. It's just not the formulas. Yeah. And I would encourage people who've read the book to reread it after this conversation, because the management stuff does come out, I, I think, uh, particularly on a reread when the first time you're you're thinking about the investments and then you read it, you're like, wait a minute, there's a different story here. And it's 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 how he did this with his team compared to a how-to manual on making $23 billion through investing. Exactly. And I do believe that the book, you one of the conclusions of the book is that we need a uh, systematized approach to, to, to life, not just investing. If you look at pilots, they've got this checklist that they've instituted over the last few years, and it, it, it saves lives. And, and, and even if you think you're good, you're a pilot, you're cocky, you've got experience, et cetera, you still have to do this checklist. You've got a systematized approach. Um, the, the greatest companies today, they're all built on models. And I'm not saying everyone needs to be a quant. You don't need to be a quant, but you need to have some approach to, to, to life that isn't just winging it. And the crazy thing to me is how you look at institutions of importance in our world, the White House, the Federal Reserve, they're kind of winging it. They're kind of figuring it out along the way. Whereas I, I, I think you need more, and, and Michael Bloomberg has talked about this a little bit, but you need more of those checklists and, and, and an approach that works over and over again, a decision-making approach, something you can rely on, something that, that when there's a crisis, you can um, lean on. And um, so those, those are some lessons there too, I think, for me anyway. Yeah, and Charlie Munger, who we referenced earlier, is very big on that decision-making checklists and oh, you know, yeah. knowledge-based checklists. And oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and so I, I would um, the um, the pivot that I I wanted to make quick because I know it's important to you because you wrote about it is what the wealth and success uh, they uh, achieved did to them, kind of after the fact and kind of their post not post career uh, life, but they all took a step back and did different things with that money. Yes. So, and it split them. I split them apart. It tore them apart because many of the people at Renaissance, it's a fascinating place because you've got different ideologies, political and otherwise. You've got capitalists. You've got socialists, believe it or not. <laughs> you've got all kinds of ideologies there. You've got Republicans and you've got Democrats. And Bob Mercer was a leading member of the firm or he, he was he is a, a big conservative and a republican backer and he became a billionaire and he changed the, the world of politics and even the world why because he was the one who um inserted he and his daughter inserted steve bannon and kellyanne uh, conway 
in the Trump um, um, campaign when it was floundering and they saved it, they righted it and the rest is history. And that bothered other people within Renaissance. And there's a guy named David Marigerman I write about and he was a left-leaning guy and he started pushing back on his boss, Bob Mercer. And Jim Simons was caught in the middle. On the one hand, Jim Simons himself is left-leaning. On the other hand, he loves money, like I said. <laughs> and Bob Mercer was making him a lot of money. And he also likes him on a personal basis. Bob Mercer is an odd guy, but he's not a bad guy. He's a quirky guy. So there are all these interesting, quirky individuals. And yeah, making all that money. And what they did with it kind of tore him apart. They've healed their their wounds. You can read about it, but they've come back together. But it was a very difficult period. And Jim, talk about you know using your money for different things. He's done fascinating things. He subsidizes math and science teachers in the New York school system. He gives a ton of money to the autism uh, effort, trying to cure or come up with uh, medicines, drugs for for autism. He's trying to figure out the uh, origins of life. All kinds of really interesting things. His foundation is quite 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 large. As I was reading it, um, that that portion of the book, the the end, I for some reason I couldn't help uh, but thinking of Ray Dalio, who has also taken a a step back from leading his hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates, and he's going about his second act to me completely differently than science. He's a new book or video every week, sharing a lot of lessons. Um, do you think it's fair to kind of contrast the two approaches to to giving back? Um, and do you know? Um, do you know Dalio? Do you know what's kind of motivating him to to take this approach? I don't know if Dalio gives back. I guess you could say principles is giving back, that kind of thing. He charges for the book, though. He's not <laughs> giving it away. Yeah. Uh, what I do find fascinating is everybody everybody wants to be somebody else in life. So George Soros wants to be considered a philosopher, and he's got big... Um, um, observations and, and both about markets, but about life as well. And, and Dalio too, it's not enough. You know, when, when you're a, um, you know, like trade traders, everybody wants to be somebody else. Hollywood wants to be taken seriously. People elsewhere want to be like Hollywood. Everybody wants to be. So the, the trader types, the billionaires, it's not enough to be wealthy. They want to be seen as philosopher kings kind of thing. So yeah, principles and, and do meditation and, if it works for me, it's got to work for others is the assumption. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Dalio seems like a fine enough guy. I've had a little limited relationship with him, but I, I don't know what his foundation does. I don't know if it's how big it is or what, what it dedicates its money to. I wouldn't. If, if Dalio was giving away principles, that would be one thing. Uh, Jim Simons is giving away money. Yeah, no, absolutely. Fair, fair points. And um as I uh, wind this down, because obviously I know we, we have you for a limited amount of time uh, and we touched on it a little bit during the conversation, but if people could take away, and, and our audience is individual investors, um, if they could take one thing away from from this book, what what would you like it to be? Well, that's, that's a tough one. Um, the importance of persistence, the difficulty of beating the market. I mean, here's Jim Simons. Brilliant individual, hired the most, these are PhDs in math and science, et cetera. They only get it right about 51% of the time. They're hit ratio, as they call it. They, they know that they lever up the right way and they trade enough. So that 51% looks like a casino in, in, in Vegas. All you need to be right is 51% of the time. But even those guys find it really difficult to get it right. So for you and I to try to, 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 to beat the market. I, I do think the one of the lessons is don't trade short term because if you're 
trading a short term, you're going up against Jim Simons. You're going up <laughs> against these guys, yeah. These guys. So yeah. go longer term. There are opportunities, I do believe, for longer term investors. There are inefficiencies still. And that's a lesson of the book, too. I mean, he's worth $25 billion because there are inefficiencies in the market still. And he'll talk about that. And he says that. So that is a reminder that there are. But don't try to trade actively or else you run up against them. But I think there, again, there are lessons in just trying to live your life and seeking beauty. And I don't know, one of my favorite lines, parts of the book, just, I don't know, I just find it, um, there's some insight there. He, Jim Simons has a lot of insight in other parts of his life as well. He's a funny guy, he's a humorous guy, but he's a, so there was a friend of his who had a few kids from different marriages and some needed help, some didn't need help financially. And he was trying, he was struggling, figuring out, well, what if I give an amount to one? And what about the other ones? Is that fair? And Jim just said to him, eventually equal. <laughs> and I don't know, those kind of lines in the book spoke to me personally. Just there are, it's a way to live your life that, that, that he approaches and with a seriousness, but also, also with some humor. And with, he does give back a lot and he's trying to help the world. And he's not always successful, but there's a persistence about him that that is admirable. And he's also overcome tragedies. He has two children that died suddenly and very tragically. And I don't know how he got past that. And, and selfishly, one of the reasons I, I write these books and talk to these people is to learn from them on a, on a personal basis and how to deal with tragedy and overcome obstacles. And that's a lot of my work, overcoming obstacles. And so uh, I think there's some lessons there as well. No, absolutely. Thank you very much, Greg. It's an excellent book, and I hope it whet the appetite of our listeners to go out and get more and also to check out your other books. This was a very enjoyable conversation and a treat for us. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And I love interacting with listeners, viewers, uh, readers. Um, I'm easy to find at the Wall Street Journal or LinkedIn or uh, Twitter. I like constructive criticism, so uh, I'm always looking to improve. So feel free to reach out. No, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior@heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakamis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast or that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.